The title of today's message is I Seek You, O God, and the theme that we're going to be exploring is God's Love is Better Than Life. This is the last uh, message in our summer series on Psalms, uh, Candid Songs from the Life of David. Shout out to Pastor Tim and Dave Field and Kevin Brown for bringing great messages from three psalms while I was gone. Uh, they did great. I was blessed as I listened to them on my way home. Um, I, if you miss them, go to our podcast channel and you will find them there. But coming to the end of a series is always a bit sad, but I think we end on a really good note with Psalm 63. It's a wonderful psalm. Uh, it's one, uh, uh, one of my shorter sermons, actually, which is a good thing because I had so many announcements at the beginning, so you shouldn't be here any longer today. Um, but William Cowper was a poet uh, back uh, almost 100 years ago, and he wrote the following poem amid a bout of serious depression. Some of you are familiar with this. God moves in mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You know, so often in life we see the negative. It's hard not to sometimes. It's right there in front of your face. Like in David's case, a parched desert, glaring, big, insurmountable, dry, hot, and deadly. The negative we see is like the heat or like that, that, that drought that he was seeing. A dreadful, it's oppressive. Uh, the sandstorms are enough to blind you. You trudge along. The depressing and condemning thoughts sometimes are relentless. Stormy relationships in your life will throw you and bruise you and, and hurt you. The challenges can be like mountains. You climb higher and higher week after week, month after month, year after year, and they don't seem to lessen. In fact, the higher you get, the less air there is for your lungs. You are gasping for breath and you're thirsty. You're just, oh, so thirsty. Uh, my two boys and I, we hiked Pikes Peak a few years ago. Uh, we started out at 6,500 feet at 5 o'clock in the morning, and we finally made it to the summit in mid-afternoon. Uh, it started out well enough. There are green trees, lush grasses, other hikers, flowing streams. Uh, after we passed 10,000 feet, it got a little bit rough. No more streams, the, the, just rocks and gravel everywhere. We'd eaten all of our flu, uh, food. The, the clouds uh, came in and covered us in a thick mist. The air was thin. It was super thin. Anyone been above 10,000 feet, like up to 14,000? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Um, we had trouble breathing. We'd take about 10 steps and we'd stop for about five minutes, catch our breath, take another five steps. Our day packs got heavier. We were freezing because it began to snow. It was the middle of August. Uh, it, was, it was snowing pretty hard when we reached 14,000 feet summit. Uh, they, have a, they have a donut shop at the top of Pikes Peak, by the way. Really good donuts. My boys both had one and pfft, went to sleep because they were lacking oxygen. I didn't feel like a very good dad. But we ran out of water. We were thirsty. We were very thirsty. When you lack oxygen, you, 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 you crave that water. No more water, no streams, just rocks and thin air. And many of David's psalms talk about thirst. David knew what it was like to be in a dry, barren place with no water. He knew what it meant to be thirsty. 
And today in Psalm 63, the prologue says that David wrote this psalm while he was in the wilderness of Judah. It was a dry and barren place. Most scholars and commentators point to the passage in 2 Samuel 15 to 17 as the most probable time that David wrote this psalm. Uh, the circumstances that forced David into the wilderness are actually kind of tragic. David had been king for many years by now, but he had a tumultuous family for various reasons. His son Absalom did not like his father. In fact, he was intent upon taking his father's uh, life and assuming the throne by force, and he organized a coup to make this happen. But David and his men learned of the coup, and they fled into the wilderness. And so I'm going to read portions uh, of the story so that we can establish the context of, of what we believe Psalm 63 is written in. So 2 Samuel 15, I'm just going to read portions that I copied into my notes, but you can just listen, um, as, and you'll hear kind of how these events play out. So 2 Samuel 15 says, Absalom sent secret messengers through all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem, and this conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else we will, there will be no escape for us. From Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever that my lord the king decides. And so the king went out and all his household after him, and all the people came after him. And they halted at the last house. And all the land wept aloud as the people, as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook. Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine being David, right? He's fleeing to save his own skin, but he's also trying to save everyone in the city from being killed by his own son his madman of a son. How hard would that be? Think of that as a father, right? Chapter 16 goes on. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat and wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. What a nice guy. These folks are headed out into the wilderness. They're fleeing for their lives, nothing to eat or drink for miles, and Ziba brought them provisions. And later on in the chapter, in verse 14, it says that the king and all the people who were with him arrived exhausted at their destination where David refreshed himself. And so David sat down along with the people. They were exhausted. They grabbed these provisions from Ziba and whatever else that they could find, and they, they ate and they drank and they refreshed themselves. And David knew what it was like to live life on the run. He'd done it for years now. He knew how to calm himself, how to relax, how to regain composure and strength, and we're going to see how in a few minutes when we look at Psalm 63. But verse, uh, chapter 17 of 2 Samuel continues down midway through the the passage, when David came to Mahanim, Shobi and Barzia brought 
bedding and basins and pottery utensils. They also brought food for David and all who were with him, including wheat and barley, flour, roasted grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, flax, and cheese. For they said, the people are no doubt hungry, tired, and thirsty in the desert. Isn't that cool? These guys brought bedding. They had been sleeping on the ground. Basins for washing and cleaning. And pottery utensils for cooking. So God supplied their needs out in the desert with these guys that brought it to him. It's quite a story. It's full of, it's full of conspiracy and danger and flight and emotion, sadness, grief, pain, uncertainty, hunger, and thirst. And David was not just up against the rigors and challenges of living in the rugged, dry wilderness, but he was also up against a military coup, treacherous individuals, spies, betrayers, family trying to kill him. Can you imagine the emotions and the turmoil that was going on inside of David during all of that? The pain of knowing that his son was out to kill him. The frustration that ever got to that point. The uncertainty as to whether life would ever go back to normal or not. The strain of trying to lead and to care for all these people out in the desert again. Remember when he was younger, he had done the same thing back uh, with all those uh, refugees that came to him. So here he is again trying to care for people out in the wilderness. And I, I find it interesting, what did David do in this incredibly stressful and dangerous situation? Well, he went to the wilderness, and there he refreshed himself. The wilderness is a place where he spent lots of time in his childhood and his early adulthood tending sheep as he was being watched over by God. A place where he fought lions and bears by himself with God's strength. A place where he relied upon God for food and water and shelter. A place where God protected him from Saul and from other enemies. And, and so David went to the place where it was just him and God. A place where God had come through and provided, and if he hadn't, he would have perished. So what does an individual do in, in, in a place of uncertainty, intense pressure and stress and fatigue and thirst? How does one manage their emotions when all seems to be falling apart at the seams and you're left with, with nothing, literally, like David? What can quench your spiritual thirst? Well, David penned the following lines that tell us what he did and, and hopefully what we should do. So, he pursued God, he praised God, he delighted in God, he clung to God, and he rejoiced in God. And those are the points in our passage. So, turn to uh, Psalm 63. <clears throat> The title, the title of the psalm is, My Soul Thirst for You. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judea. So we've established the story behind that. And he starts out, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He starts out, he says, Oh God, you are my God. You and you alone. No one else. I'm telling you right now, you are my God. And because you are my God, I will earnestly seek you. I long for you. I want to be with you. I miss you. My soul thirsts for you. I want to be near you so badly it feels like thirst. You know that strong desire to drink when you can't think of anything else but water, the slight panicky feeling when you can't just reach for something to quench your thirst? Have you ever been there? 
You need it. You know you need it. Without water, you get weak, you get faint, you get sick, you, you get groggy, you get confused, you die. My flesh faints for you. My flesh longs for you. My flesh desires nothing but you. It's like I'm in a dry and parched land where there is no water. You ever been to Great Sand Dunes National Park? Anybody out there? A couple of you. Yeah, that's... You drive through miles and miles and miles of parched earth, nothing around, and then in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of all this parchedness, is this gigantic area, acre upon acre of just rolling sand dunes. No water in sight. Dry, parched, thirsty, barren, hot. And this is the type of place that David cries out to God from, Oh God, I long for you, I thirst for you. Psalm 42 David penned another psalm, similar. He says, as the deer, like we sang this morning, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul. For you, O God, my soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? Are you there right now? Perhaps you're in a spiritual desert. Nothing uh, seem, you read seems to refresh you. Your prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling. Nobody seems to understand the place you're in. Your emotions are high, your stress level's at its limit, your concerns are too many to count. In that place, what are you seeking? What are you longing for? What do you thirst for? Is it a place to get away? Is it food? Is it drink? Is it alcohol? Is it entertainment? Is it a new job? Is it some powerful person that's going to come in and save the day? Or do you long for God? Because he's the only thing that can satisfy. In fact, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And Jesus also said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will fill rivers of living water. You look unto Jesus. Long for Jesus. Earnestly seek Jesus, the fountain of living water. Because when you do, in verse 2, you will behold his power and his glory. When your soul is thirsty, when your flesh faints, pursue God. Seek Jesus. Go to him and drink from his spring of life. Pursue him because you have much more to praise him for than you may realize. And that's our second point. Praise him, verse 3 and 4. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Here's the truth of the matter. God's love is better than life. You see, being the object of God's love is better than life itself. Experiencing the steadfast love of Jesus is better than living. Apart from God's love, we're dead in our sins. God's love is better than life because God's love is life. The Apostle John said it like this, God is love and in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live life through him. In this was love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. Jesus gave his life so that we could have ours. His act of love gives us eternal life, assuming that we turn to him in belief. 
And so because God's love is better than life, because it is life itself, wouldn't it seem logical that we would be grateful? Shouldn't we praise him? Shouldn't we bless him? Shouldn't we glorify him for as long as we live, as David says? Our lives are not our own anyway. We only have life because of the loving kindness and grace of God. Without his gracious loving kindness found in Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we bless him for as long as we live because he has given to us eternal life. We lift up our hands in gratitude to his name for the wonder of being a recipient of the lavish and gracious love of God. Sometimes I don't think we understand the magnitude of this. We have it good. We live luxurious lives compared to most of the world's population. We enjoy endless entertainment. We, have, we never go hungry. We have an endless supply of bottled drinks to quench our thirst. And if we don't have that, we can drink out of the tap without getting sick or having a bacterial infection. We have roofs over our head, food in the cupboards, clothes in the closet, mattresses on our beds, shoes on our feet. Oh, and if that's not enough, we have TVs on the wall, spending money in our pockets, uh, phones in our pockets, cars in the garage, tools on the bench, bikes on the rack, boats in the backyard. Our lives are good. It's a blessing, and we have everything that we could ever need or want. But it can also be a curse because we tend to look at God and compare him to all the good things that we have and that we enjoy, and we can subconsciously say, is it though? Is God's really, love really better than life? Because all this stuff is pretty fun and it's pretty satisfying, it's pretty comforting, it's pretty cool. I'm not really thirsty or hungry for him. I've got all, I, I haven't got the time anyway. I'm too busy enjoying these good things that he has given to me. You know, David was, a, was king. He was a king. He was the king of Israel. He had all the good things of life too. He had houses and money and food and luxury, entertainment, everything. The stuff of life isn't bad in and of itself. It's what we take delight in that is the issue. And when David had it all stripped away, when misfortune and mischief forced him out of his palace and his city and his home, David didn't curse God. David didn't bemoan all that he lost. No, David knew that God's love was better than all of that. It was better than life. And so David pursued God. He praised God. And thirdly, David took delight in God. Verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. He says, My soul will be satisfied when I remember you. And I can just picture David lying there on the ground, a rock in his back, a, a stone for his pillow, try, a lying next to a fire. He's dirty, he's uncomfortable, and, and thinking about uh, his life in the palace, right? All the good food, the luxury, the comfort, the mattress, the cold water. But he didn't dwell on that. For look what he says. He says, my soul is satisfied as with fat and rich food when I think of you. We love fried food, right? I mean, I love fried food. Um, French fries, fried chicken, donuts, whatever. Uh, David said that the memory of God was better. The memory of Jesus satisfied even better than fried food. 
The experience of living in his forgiveness is better than grilled steak. The knowledge of his steadfast love is richer than chocolate cheesecake. The freedom of living in his will is more satisfying than a cold glass of lemonade on a hot summer day. And the confidence of being sheltered under his protective wings is more comforting than a hot chicken soup on a cold winter's night. I think you get the picture. Some of you might be salivating right now, right? That's the idea. That's the idea. Jesus is much more satisfying than anything I just mentioned. Do you desire Jesus that much? Does he satisfy you in the same way? And he says, my mouth will praise you when I meditate on you. And David sang with joyful lips. David meditated upon God in the watches of the night. David was out in the wilderness, remember? In the watches of the night. He was sleeping on the ground. He was cooking over a fire. He was drinking from whatever stream or spring he could find. He was using a hole in the ground for his facilities. And a coup was right around the corner. Men were on the march, moving his way. Treachery was high. Trust was low. And David, he laid down to sleep, and he thought of God. In all of that, he thought of God. And he meditated upon the goodness and the love and the beauty of the Lord. And he remembered how God had been his helper. And this caused him to be joyful. God gave him joy. And you know what? David experienced a truth that I cling to often. It's one of my favorite sentences in the whole Bible. The joy of the Lord is our strength. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. And David sang for joy and this gave him strength. Strength to do what? Strength to cling to God. Our next point, verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. So the joy that God gave to David was the source of strength that David relied upon to cling to God. David clung to God with all his strength. When you cling to something, you don't want to lose grip on it. Typically, clinging is a matter of life and death. That's when we use that word, right? Like clinging to a handhold on the side of a cliff or clinging uh, to your child's hand as you're walking through a huge crowd of people or clinging to the raft as you fly through the rapids, right? Something like that. The word is used in Genesis when God says, so shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. To cling means to hold to, to stay close. In other words, faith is not passive, faith is active. Faith in Jesus doesn't just receive all the blessings from his hand and passively sit in the easy chair of life. No, faith is actively pursuing God, praising God, delighting in God, and clinging to God because his love is better than life. And notice the interaction between God and David. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. And there is reciprocity, there's mutuality, there is a relationship there. God says, you are my servant in Isaiah 41. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And David believed this and he clung to this truth. In turn, God upheld him with his powerful right hand. And look how David describes God's upholding him in verse 9 and 10. He says, But those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They will be a portion for jackals. And I want to read you what happened after David wrote this psalm. 
So Absalom heard the advice of one of his counselors. He sent a large army out into the wilderness to meet David and his men in battle. He assumed he could kill his father in the throes of battle. And David mustered his troops as well. He had to defend himself. Chapter 18 of 2 Samuel says that there were thousands on David's side and thousands on the other side. And the two armies met in the wilderness. David clung to God. And I want you to look at what happened. 2 Samuel 18, verse 6 to 8. So David's army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. 20,000 died. Think of how many the forest devoured. The forest devoured more people than the sword. What did David say in the psalm? Those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth. Huh. The forest ate them up. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. Interesting. 20,000 people died. That's a lot of people by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Where are jackals found? In the forests, in the desert places. So God upheld David's life out in the wilderness as David clung to him. Now, we don't face enemies like that today. What kind of enemies do we face? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Do those enemies sometimes look insurmountable, undefeatable, 20,000 of them, right? Intimidatingly powerful? They do. But they're no match for our Savior cling to Jesus. Isaiah 41, 13, For I, the Lord your God, uphold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Will Jesus defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil as we cling to him? Absolutely. He's the only one who can because he is the source of salvation. Cling to him. And finally, our fifth point, rejoice in God, verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him will exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Psalms always end a little bit weird. You're like, what is he doing there, right? David ends by saying, the king will rejoice in God. Again, David is in the wilderness when he writes this psalm. He's forced to flee from his son who wants to kill him. There's a coup after him. And he's forced to live in the wild. He's running for his life. And David says, I will rejoice in God. David didn't grumble, he didn't complain, he didn't fuss, he didn't fume. He rejoiced in God. He he doesn't rejoice in his army. He doesn't rejoice in the fact that he will be able to go home someday. He doesn't rejoice in the death of his enemies. No, he rejoiced in God, his salvation. He boasted in the Lord. David gloried in the salvation of Yahweh through Jesus. And all, he says, all who swear by him will exalt. Another way of saying that is, everyone who takes oaths in his name will boast. Why will they boast? Because they took an oath? Because they're so committed, so faithful, so, so you know, faithful people, right? So wise? No, they will boast because his name is holy and powerful and faithful and wise. Because God is the victory, victor. That is why they can boast. However, contrast here, the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. They will be plugged up. They will be stuck. In other words, the truth of God will triumph. 
The word of God will stop all falsehood and evil. Jesus is and will be King of kings and Lord of lords. And every tongue, in the end of the day, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what happens when you trudge along in life and the depressing, condemning thoughts become relentless? Stormy relationships throw you and bruise you and hurt you. The challenges are seemingly insurmountable, like mountains you climb higher and higher week after week, month after month, year after year. The pain, the fatigue of the climb doesn't seem to lessen. What do you do when it seems like you're running for your life when you are thirsty? Oh, so thirsty. What do you do in a place of uncertainty, intense pressure and stress, fatigue and thirst? What do you do when, like David, you are emotional and all seems to be falling apart at the seams? David would say, pursue God, praise God. Delight in God, cling to God, rejoice in God because God's love is better than life. The author of Hebrews put it this way, and I call it the three lettuces of Scripture. I think of a head of lettuce, right? But it's more let us. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 and following says this, Let us draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So he says, let us draw near, pursue, approach, Worship, go to. In other words, as David said, pursue, praise, delight in God. The idea is drink deeply from Jesus. Quench your thirst in Jesus. Satisfy your hunger in him. Take delight in him. Go to him like you would go to a bubbling spring in the desert with anticipation, with hope, with joy, with thirst, and fall into the refreshment of his love and grace. Go to him. Draw near to him in full assurance that he loves you. Hebrews, author Hebrews says, secondly, so you draw near to him and then you let us hold fast to seize. In other words, as David put it, cling to God. Hold on to Jesus. As you hold on to Jesus, he'll hold on to you with his powerful hand. He will never let you go. The author of Hebrews encourages us to hold fast and cling to our hope. Like David said, our souls cling to him. Our only hope is in Jesus. Cling to him without wavering. Hold tight. Don't let go with all the strength that he supplies. A few years ago, Kelly stumbled upon a set of antique books, and she bought them for me. Uh, the set she, she bought me is extremely rare, and it's one of my favorite gifts from her. Um, each volume is worth a small fortune, and the price she paid for it was a steal. Uh, they are a four-volume set of the pastor and preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon's autobiography, compiled by his wife from his diaries, letters, his records. There's not even a date in the front. Like, it was, they didn't even print the printing date. Super duper old. But since I'm no longer in school anymore, meaning that I have my evenings free from homework, I decided to pull out the second volume off the shelf and begin reading it again. The chapter I was reading a few weeks ago was on how Spurgeon started a pastor's college, preparing young men for the rigors of ministry and the challenges of preaching. The model for that college stood out for me. Et teneo et teneor, which is Latin for I hold and am held. To quote the book, our desire is that every man may hold the truth 
and be held by it, the truth of Christ crucified. So we hold on to Jesus, and we are held by Jesus. We hold, and we are held. The reciprocal relationship of life with God of the universe and the Savior of our souls. As, as David said, O oh Jesus, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So let us draw near, let us hold fast, and then let us stir up one another to love and good works. And to stir up means to incite or to provoke or to irritate, which is an interesting word choice. We are to irritate one another to love and good works. So I guess I'm not doing my job if I'm not irritating you enough to love. <laughs> in seriousness, though, the idea is to get one another all worked up in a good way to love and good works. Let's get each other excited and rally around Jesus' love and his goodness to us so that his love and goodness overflow from us to those around us. Let us drink so fully from Jesus' well of life that it overwhelms us and spills onto others. In other words, as David put it, let us rejoice in God, let our lips praise him. Let us give glory to his name by loving him and loving others in the way that he has mercifully loved us. Because his steadfast love is better than life, our lips will praise him. So we will bless Jesus as long as we live. In his name, we will lift our hands in worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can call you Father, that you are eternal and that you are faithful and that you uphold us. Thank you that we have the assurance that we are in your love because we believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. Thank you that he saved us from our sin, from death, from all the evil things that await us if we don't have you. Thank you that we have you. Thank you that you uphold us, strengthen us to cling to you. May your joy fill us and may your joy, may your joy be our strength. God, we love you. We're so enamored by you. May our souls thirst for you in the way that David describes here. God, may we go out of here different than when we came. May we go out uh, appreciative of what you have done, of how much you have done for us, your love, your grace lavished upon us. And may that cause us, God, to praise you and to seek you and to love you with all our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.